Mark My Words shares Mark Homer's contrarian views on investing, business, finance, economics, and all things money. Mark interviews the world's most successful business, finance, and money experts, as well as imparting his knowledge in a factual, direct, and no-nonsense manner. Welcome to Mark My Words, and here is your host, Mark Homer. So, your your next speaker, um, this gentleman um, is probably one of, you know what, it's not one of the only, um, he's the host of the only podcast that I listen to every single episode of without fail. I'm, I'm the sort of person, I tend to, like, I, I'll dabble, I'll, I'll listen to a little bit of Diary of a CEO and a little bit of Gary Vaynerchuk and a little bit of other people, but this podcast I listen to religiously, um, which is called Mark My Words, and it's Mark Homer's views. Let's see if I can do the intro. This is Mark My Words, Mark Homer's contra- contrarian views on all things economy and money. But I think it's an excellent podcast um, and I highly recommend it to anybody. Um, he manages um, you know, a huge group of companies, thousand plus tenants, 40 million pound plus property portfolio, has done over a thousand deals. Um, So what this guy doesn't know about money and wealth building is not worth knowing. The theme for these three days, two days, uh, underground, it feels like three days. The theme for these two days at underground is mindset, marketing and money. We are now firmly into the money section and this guy is the best person. I can't think of anybody better to kick us off. So uh, ladies and gentlemen, please give a warm round of applause to Mr. Mark Homer. Thank you, Nick. Cheers. Mark Homer, ladies and gentlemen. Okay, thank you very much, Nick, and good afternoon. So, uh, I've been doing this uh, about 20 years, investing in sort of residential and commercial property. Uh, developed quite a few buildings over the years. I don't know, maybe about a thousand deals, something like that. About 80 million pounds worth of property, um, and we've retained about 40 million of it for ourselves. So, I'm just going to talk you through some of the concepts which. Um, I've used to build that business and some of the other businesses which we have. Um, And I'm going to go through a few of the deals which I've done more recently. Uh, And then we're going to have a a Q&A a a little bit later on with with Nick. Um, Okay, so the first thing that um, is... I, I, I think sort of when, when you're looking for a new sort of wealth building strategy, something which is going to catapult you uh, into a new sort of stratosphere, um, you need to find the right model. You need to find the model that A, makes money, B, uh, you know, aligns with your passion uh, and something that you're enjoying, something that you love, usually means that even when it's really, really tough, because let's be honest, building businesses, making money, it can be tough. Uh, and you need to be able to really, really love something. You need to want to sort of get up in the morning and, you know, those those late nights when you're just, I don't know, sitting around and you, you're going to sort of read about something. You need to want to learn and read and, and push yourself further into uh, this zone that's going to make you the money. And if you love it, 
if it's your passion, it's not going to feel like work. It's going to feel like something that is enjoyable and something that you want to do. So your model needs to make money. It needs to be something that you love doing. Um, and it needs to be something that is scalable, something that people actually uh, want to buy. Um, and, you know, for me, uh, one of the uh, best ways in which I have found those models is by surrounding myself with other people who make money, who um, have good sort of businesses, have good models. You're not necessarily sort of taking everything out of their business, which um, they're, I don't know, you, you know, you're not copying, you're not taking it all v verbatim, but you get ideas, you get uh, different things that you can take into your business that you will then sort of modify, change, and make your own. Uh, so remember, the, the five closest people to you, that's who you become. Um, so for me, that's, that is a, a huge, a huge thing. You really want to make your, your business your hobby. Um, you know, if you can, you know, th this is a bit of a balance. People, you know, I, I hear it a lot where people say, oh, you, you only need to follow your passion. Well, yeah, that's fine. But if your passion doesn't make money and people don't want to buy it and it's not a profitable model, uh, then it's probably not suitable. Uh, but if you can find something that you love doing, I, I love doing property deals, I love finding buildings, sweating them, you know, making, getting extra apartments out of them, getting extra, um, seeing if I can get a, a bigger commercial unit in there and getting a better tenant in there and, and getting a you know, a higher rent so that I add more value to the building. All that stuff I love doing and I love listening to podcasts on it. I love sort of reading about it. Um, you know, I'll, I'll travel around the world meeting people doing that. So it's sort of my hobby. It, it's sort of uh, a hobby that makes money. Um, so really what you need to be doing uh, is, you know, once you find uh, a good model, you need to be taking the best bits uh, from other businesses that are doing something similar. Um, so rip off and deploy is one way of putting it. Um, that's uh, something my business partner uh, uses quite a lot. So you usually want to find the best in class. You want to find the businesses or the people who have already trodden that path, who have already done what you're looking to do, um, and to start taking the best bits from those businesses uh, and make them your own. Um, lots and lots of people in property actually usually want to help, and, and in business as well, um, as long as you're not in an area where you're competing with each other. So, you know, if, with property, for instance, if you're at a sort of local property networking event, um, you might um, meet people who, let's say if it was around here, they might be investing in Birmingham uh, or they might be investing in Solihull. Uh, if you were looking to build your portfolio uh, where I built mine in Peterborough, well, local people pro probably would share more with you because they wouldn't see you as a competitor. I find that a lot when I go around to little local property networking events. Lots of people want to help. Uh, but when I go to the ones in Peterborough, it can be a different story. Uh, so, you know, it, it, the, you'd be surprised with, with businesses, similar thing. There are loads of business networking clubs, um, loads of um, people within those actually want to help you grow your business because not all business owners, but lots of business owners get something from helping other people because, um, you know, it's, you, you sort of pay it forward. 
uh, often the more you give, the more you get, uh, as long as you're sort of giving in the right way. So um, lots of people appreciate that, and they will want to help you uh, as long as you've got some value to give them over the, over the medium term. Uh, then they'll probably continue to do that sustainably. Um, so I think there's a, there's a lot of value in that. Lots of people, when they start, they find a new model, uh, they, they sort of procrastinate and want to do more research and keep sort of drilling into the thing, oh, is it going to work, isn't it going to work? I can be guilty of this. I, c I can do this now. I, I was really bad sort of 20 years ago. Um, but it's very important to actually just get started. And I think the ready, fire, aim principle uh, is uh, really, really sort of valid in this scenario. Um, you, you, you would obviously normally uh, take a rifle and you would normally sort of aim, wouldn't you? Uh, get ready, you'd aim, and then you would fire. But in this scenario, you're sort of firing and then you're aiming afterwards. Uh, so it wouldn't really work with a rifle, uh, but, but with business it absolutely does work. You need to get started because the way in which you start now and th the way in which you sort of fashion your business and you, you, you um, develop whatever it is you want to do, that's not going to be how your business looks once you've been through the development process. You only know, or you only, yeah, you only know what to do with your business and how to make it the best business once you've tested it on the marketplace, tested it on your customers, and then tweaked it a thousand different times to make it that much better. But if you don't get started, you don't get all those tweaks. You don't modify it uh, according to what the market and your customers want, uh, and therefore you don't end up with anything. Um, so this is one of the biggest things when you're looking, when you're, you're finding your model, you're developing your business, you need to ready fire aim, you need to get started, you need to make a load of mistakes. Yes, your first customers may not be as impressed as, as the ones you have in 20 years time, um, but it doesn't matter. Lots of those guys actually, they won't care uh, and they'll watch you changing your business and improving it incrementally as you learn more about it, about the customers, about your suppliers, uh, about what works best, about what is profitable, how to make most the most margin, all that stuff you will work out as you go along. I think that's probably why a lot of people buy, would buy a franchise. Okay, it sort of pushes them on quicker uh, and they've got a model to work with, um, you know, but it, it sort of gets people started. Um, don't necessarily need to do that. You can just get started yourself and work out all the things that you need to know by talking to people, by talking to your customers, by testing the market. And within a year or two, you'll be the expert anyway. You'll know more than most other people about that business and that thing and how to make money out of it. If you're really on it and you make it your passion and you put all your energy and your time into it. Good idea to create some pain and some urgency. I think when you're doing this, deadlines can be good, goals can be good. Um, maybe you'd have some sort of monetary imperative. You need to reach X amount of revenue by X date. Uh, that can be a good thing. So, you know, piling a load of money into your business uh, and having a really long runway for profitability, I'm not sure that's always a good idea. It's usually better to sort of get something and sweat it uh, and, um, 
you know, you push it as hard as you can. If you sort of have a, a deadline or an expectation that you're going to get become profitable within a year, um, then you might do it in 18 months. But if you start with the expectation you need to do it in six months, uh, well, then you might get it done in nine months or a year. Um, it's amazing what you can achieve when you really, really commit to something and create massive focus and massive action in an area. Um, so, you know, the pain and the urgency, you know, and that could be through money, through deadlines. Uh, it could also be by talking to other people and telling them what you're going to do. Uh, I, I'd find that, some people aren't bothered, but I'd find that particularly embarrassing. Um, you know, I'd, I'd just say, well, I'm going to have this business by this date and I'm going to be making sort of this much money. Most people don't care anyway. Um, you sort of think they do, but most people will forget what you say. Uh, but, it, you know, certainly if I sort of, um, I did that, I don't know, three or four months ago, I, I went on a little training regime and I told a few people, and I told what, them what I was going to achieve. And it's certainly pushing me to do that because I don't want to um, just sort of stop, give up, uh, or let it take a lot, lot longer because I'll just feel like uh, I've been a, a bit of a failure. So telling people what you're going to do can uh, create accountability for yourself, huge accountability. I think uh, another part of this is, f you know, you need to accept, understand, find what it is you're good at, what you're passionate about, what you love doing, um, and also what you're not good at and what you dislike uh, and, and, you know, what, what you don't really want to do. Uh, and all of those things that you're not so good at, well, if you can find a business partner who is good at that, uh, that can be a major benefit. Uh, so I have a business partner. Uh, he is good at m almost all the stuff that I'm not very good at, uh, which is quite useful, and that's why it works very well between us. Um, and, you know, basically, if, if, if it's something in his area and he's decided uh, he wants to do, you know, something, uh, you know, he, he wants to make X or Y decision, uh, then usually I will just go with it because I know he knows more about that, that thing than me because he's better at it than me and he's got more experience in that thing. You don't necessarily need a business partner. You might decide to employ staff or you might have sort of external consultants or people that help you with your business. But what you need to do is identify all those things that you're not good at or you don't want to do, you're not passionate at and bring other people in to help you do those things and then set them on the way. And you, you really need the best. You want to find the best employees uh, and, and you, you'll end up probably paying them, I don't know, maybe one and a half times more than you would an average employee, but they'll probably deliver five times the value. And the same with your business partner um, and the same with you know, any, anybody else who comes in maybe on a self-employed basis to, to help you with your business. I think that's a, a huge thing. So once you've found your model, it's all about implementation um, and you need clear, definable goals um, in order to make sure you're hitting those milestones, make sure that you're implementing correctly. Um, you know, the, the, the <clears throat> I see lots of people sort of meander around. They don't necessarily focus enough. They're um, lost in the shiny penny, so they're, they're sort of on this business, looks okay, they've done it for a few weeks, they get a bit bored, somebody else says you can make more money over here, uh, so they try that for a little bit, uh, and you know, maybe that's not so exciting after a few weeks, and then they try something out. Anybody uh, sort of been in that, that 
boat before? I certainly have. Uh, Maybe less so these days, but um, I think if you have a a plan, you you write it down, you have very clear goals, and you, you you set a period to make something work, you make some investment, uh, so you, you basically burn a bridge uh, and you put some money into something and you decide you're going to give it X amount of time, you're going to put X amount of money in and those goals are set. You know, they're very, very clear. They're very, very um, sort of actionable and precise for certain dates that you need to achieve certain things. Uh, I think you're much, much more likely to stay the course uh, and build you know, the, the business that you want uh, by sort of keep on keeping on and, and hitting those goals or hitting those milestones rather than being diverted onto all this other stuff, this other noise, which lots of people will uh, tell you about, you know, things that, that they think make more money and maybe it does work for them. But, you know, it doesn't necessarily work for you. You have to mate whatever business it is that you're looking to build with your passions, your skills, and the, and the things that are you know, going to really excite you to drive you through all those really tough times, because you're going to have tough times in business. It is hard to, to, to build you know, really, really brilliant businesses. So again, on, on securing the model, um, you've, you've got it rolling, you, you've got your goals, you're staying the course. You need to test a measure. Testing and measuring is the way that you develop the best business, whether it's a property business, a trading business, a training business like this, you're constantly working out, you know, you, you, you put an event on like this, how many people is best in the room, what type of room do you want, what shape of room, um, in terms of the marketing, how do you best market to people, do you send them tickets, do you sell them books, um, do, you, do you do email marketing online, are you marketing through social media, all that stuff is constantly being tested and measured. In our business, we, we have a training business uh, a little bit like this, and every event we have KPIs, we have data. So all this data comes through at the end of the event, and we know at that point, because the market changes, at that point, what's working? Where have the leads come from? Where have the customers come from? How much did we spend on each type of marketing? And then how much did those customers spend on on different courses? You need to be constantly testing and measuring this stuff. Because if you don't measure something, you can't manage it. And if you you can't manage it, well, it's, it's pretty pointless. So you need numbers, you need data, you need key performance indicators on all of the important parts of your business. Very, very important. Anybody heard of The E-Myth by Michael Gerber? Yeah, so that's a great book on systemizing your business. Uh, We read that a couple of times. Um, You know, your hierarchy. You need to uh, create that and have all your job roles. um, And you need to create this system, this process. KPIs, test and measure everything. (coughs) So... Very, very important to manage your time uh, carefully and work out how much income generating time that you are spending on each part of um, your business. If you're doing lots in your business that uh, takes a lot of time but doesn't necessarily grow the business, doesn't create better systems, doesn't uh, create more profitability for the long run or increase the client value or increase the 
the sort of client experience through their journey, well, it's maybe not something that you should be doing. Um, so again, I would be measuring that, looking at your tasks every day, writing down you know, whatever it is you're doing, putting a number next to it for how long you do it, um, and you know, how much of that was actually IGT, income generating time. Um, if you do that for maybe a week, you'll be able to sort of see how much time you actually spend on that non-income generative stuff. I mean, half an hour of it might be Instagram. Uh, you, know, you might have 45 minutes on Facebook. There'll be all sorts of stuff in there which is not going to benefit the, the growth of your business. Fine, do that stuff later once you've got the business rolling, once you've found your model. Um, but you know, once you're growing, you need to cut all that stuff out. It needs to go. Um, leverage, manage, do is a very important concept. Um, so I will always be drawn to doing things. Uh, my dad used to say to me when I was younger, well, you know, if you want a job, do it right, you do it yourself. Uh, and, you know, that still goes through in my head. Often I look at people and just think, oh, yeah, fuck that up, I'll just do it. You know, and that, that goes through my head every day. Uh, I can see that there's a few people here that have similar thoughts. The problem with that, and I have to tell myself this all the time, the problem with that is that there is only one of you. Um, and your time as the business owner is worth a lot, lot more than, say, a staff member. So if you can get a staff member to do that thing that you were doing, um, even if they're only 60% as good, and by the way, what you want to do is spend more and get someone who's 200% better than you, twice as good as you, but you know, even if they're only 60% as good, that's okay because you can get multiple staff, and as long as they're sort of managed correctly, you're going to be able to leverage your time out and get more done with less, because your time is, uh, you know, you, you've only got, say, eight or ten hours every day. But you can multiply that time to infinity, can't you, by building a bigger and bigger organization with a big hierarchy and a structure. So if you're looking at any task, you need to think initially, Yes, okay, I want to do this myself, but that is the least desirable. So the most desirable thing to do is to leverage it away and have somebody else do it who you know, you're not even managing. So that, that might be, I don't know, somebody external even. Or if you've got managing in your business, you would delegate it to them. Next most... Um, uh, you know, the next sort of thing which uh, you would, or next least, uh, next most desirable thing would be uh, to manage somebody else to do that thing for you. Uh, so you might, I don't know, have a staff member who you're managing directly. Obviously, there's a little bit of your time still managing them to do that task. Um, so, you know, that's, that's something you may have to do. And the least most desirable is to, to actually do the task yourself. Um, so you constantly want to be looking at how you can leverage this stuff out or manage it and least desirable, uh, you know, do it yourself. I'm, I'm constantly, all week, I'm looking at stuff that I need to delegate to, you know, I, I have a, most of our property stuff is, is run by me and uh, my assistant. We have a, a, a lettings team downstairs for all our residential stuff. Uh, and there's maybe a team of sort of 10 or 11 in there. 
I have a business partner who runs that, so I leverage all of that to him and to that team. Um, but you know, when I'm negotiating a new lease or you know, I'm buying a building or whatever, I usually do that. I accept that's that's for me, and you know, I want to do it. I think I can add the most value. Um, but you know, there's stacks of stuff. I don't know. This week, you know, we had to sort out something for the the um, energy supplier. There's a there's a huge um, substation in a building with a roller shutter, on. and immediately, you know, I wanted to get down there because I knew it would just take me half an hour to sort out what their issue was, you know, with a battery backup, and there was a few technical things which I, I thought my assistant wouldn't be able to do. But I sort of gave it to her, and she fired off. She couldn't work it out. She came back to me, and initially I thought I should have just done it myself. But what we did, we went down to the building together, and we had a fiddle around, and she knew something about it that I didn't, in terms of where the battery backup was. I then uh, you know, found the key and the, you know, the combination, which she didn't know, um, and she worked it all out, and then she replied to the uh, DNO, you know, the big electricity supplier. She will now meet them, and next time, she already knows more about that thing and how to deal with them and how to sort that issue out that, than I do, which is a great place to be. All I need to do now is make sure she's happy and she's retained so I haven't, she doesn't leave and I have to train somebody else up, which uh, is obviously also at the back of my mind. But she's been there like 15 years, so um, that's a, a big thing for me. Um, but you know, that, that's an example of just a small task this week that was maybe, I don't know, half an hour, 45 minute task uh, that I've leveraged away to her. Uh, I haven't even got a manager because I don't have to manage her because she's, um, uh, she, she's sort of uh, worked out how to manage herself because she's that mature, which is great. Um, uh, often, you know, a lot of staff, especially the younger ones, you have to manage them and you have to do all their holiday stuff and you have to do all their, uh, you know, all the, all, all the stuff I hate doing. Um, so, um, yeah, it's, um, you know, we generally, we, we generally bring managers into our building to do that, into our different businesses. We have a managing director who runs our training business. Um, I think we have 110 staff in our training business. And then below her, there are sort of departmental managers. Uh, and then below her, there would be sort of supervisors and then sort of it, the individuals doing the doing. So if I need something doing in that business, I will usually give it to her or leverage it to her or, or to one of the managers to, to sort of pass on. McDonald's is the best example of this. If you go in there, it is probably the biggest and the best system in the world of, of management. You see how well it is managed. Um, I have a, a friend who, um, he's just taken three McDonald's on and the system is quite unbelievable, um, you know, in terms of the you know, all the processes, how, you know, it's all documented, and then, you know, how it's then audited and controlled. Um, you know, that, that if you, you know, want a, a live example of Michael Gerber's e-myth, go, go into McDonald's and, and, and just see what they do. Okay, so I'm going to move on now. Uh, I'm going to start talking about what's happening in the economy. Uh, how uh, things are changing, because at the moment things really are changing, this huge flux going on, um, and how this is sort of quite important to understand, to work out um, how you can use it to your advantage in your business, in your property businesses. Um, so here goes. So the biggest sort of change that's going on in the mo at the moment is what? 
So interest rates, which are driven by what? Inflation, which has been driven by what? Fuel prices, so maybe oil, maybe gas. What else? Uh, media, yes, d uh, definitely, uh, even though that's uh, not necessarily the uh, settled uh, the, the settled sort of thought, is it? Uh, I, I think the media have got a lot to uh, to answer for with all of this. They always have. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, probably food, oil, gas. Um, I, I'd say a huge part of this actually was supply chains being shut during COVID. Um, that's probably underestimated. Uh, if you close a whole country down, um, and China, uh, the world's factory, and then you reopen it, it doesn't suddenly start going again, does it? All of those linkages, all of those suppliers that go into those factories have to take time to get producing again. So we're still seeing some of the effects of that. I think that was maybe one of the biggest things. What else has driven all of this inflation? Huge thing, which they deny. Uh, yeah, I suppose Russia with the energy, definitely. That hasn't helped. But Brexit hasn't helped, I don't think. We'll maybe get a bit of controversy in the room with that. But um, yeah, exactly. So um, how do you print several trillion dollars worth of uh, currency and, and pounds sterling uh, and, and have it and, and it have no effect on the money supply. Um, it's impossible. I know they're sort of denying it, but uh, the Bank of England um, are, are almost the only ones that really are denying it. I think the reality is um, the fact that we've been engaging in quantitative easing, effectively you know, producing bonds, which then get sent around in a big circle between the Treasury and the Bank of England, uh, means we've been printing money, haven't we? Um, you know, billions and billions and billions, and the, the Americans have been doing it as well. So when the supply chains got shut and we got all this um, energy price shock, it created inflation. Um, so for property, this is obviously a really big deal, and it's a big deal if you're developing a business with debt because it's more costly. You know, we were paying half a percent. Or, or should I say Bank of England base rate was half a percent before this started. It's now 5%. So it's gone up a lot, hasn't it? It's gone up 10 times. I mean, that, that, you know, that's serious. Serious, serious stuff. 1,000%. So what's happening to the value of leveraged businesses or property at the moment? It's dropping. They're they're dropping, or, or you know, businesses with a, a big sort of, uh, you know, tech businesses. They, they they went through a really really sort of um, low point in terms of valuation. Some of them have come back now, but certainly with property, it's dropping. Um, you know, we where we are, most residential properties probably dropped 10, 15 percent, something like that. Um, and I suspect there's more to come. Um, you'll see in a minute on the slides where the market thinks base rates going. Uh, at the moment, we're at five, uh, but it's going to carry on going up in all likelihood. No one knows for sure, but um, I'll, sh I'll show you sort of where, where that thinks it's going. So you can see on that slide there, this is where the banks uh, price the money they lend to you. And that's for borrowing in your business, for borrowing on your home, for borrowing on investment properties, commercial buildings, residential buildings, any, any, almost any type of borrowing, car finance. 
it, it gets usually priced off um, uh, the, the, the guilt rate okay, for a, a specific period. So you can see there, that's 10-year money. That's money that the government would borrow for 10 years. That is the price of those gilts in terms of the, the income that they would generate. And you can see uh, before this started, we, we probably got in maybe July 2020 to a 10 year, it's effectively a 10 year fixed rate uh, that you could get those government gilts in and they would be producing maybe 0.6, 0.7%. Um, now, uh, if you're going to go and purchase one of those, you're going to get something like a 4.1%, 4.2% return, something like that. So it's changed massively. Uh, so therefore, if banks are going to lend you money, you can see the cost of a 10-year fixed rate loan uh, for them, you know, for them taking a, that money into their institution. That's what it's going to cost them for 10 years on a fixed basis. So then they're going to lend that out to you. They need to put a margin on it, don't they? So you can see how it's changed hugely. Um, this is where the market thinks base rates going. It, this is a little bit, um, uh, you know, th this is a little bit further back. So, but you can see here on the 6th of July, and th this has come down a little bit now, but on the 6th of July, the market was betting that UK base rate was going to 6.5% by March 24. Okay, so we're at 5 now. And this is an, another 1.5% increase. So it's significant, isn't it? We've, we've already gone from half a percent. Um, I think the market thinks now it's more like 6%. It's come back a little bit because our inflation numbers have, have probably turned, well, they have turned a corner. Let's hope it's sustained uh, and they keep coming down. But, you know, our inflation is, is way higher than the rest of the world. We're still at sort of 8%. Europe's maybe at 6 And the US is at 4 moving into 3 um, So, you know, we're the outlier. We're, we are, in terms of the, the G7 and the developed world, we're way, way above the others. Uh, and, you know, maybe that starts to moderate, you know, as the year goes on. Uh, but um, it's certainly not dropped anything like as quickly as the Bank of England predicted or, um, you know, e even the markets predicted. Um, so this is what the Bank of England thought was going to happen. Uh, and wh what, what they still, th this is what they're, they're sort of still saying. But the, the curve was sort of even earlier. They, they thought that sort of by about March this year, inflation was going to fall off a cliff. Well, now they're saying that inflation is going to fall off a cliff, um, you know, later on into maybe the third quarter of this year. It's certainly going to drop, but it's just how far it gets down and how quick. Um, there's a school of thought that thinks it could get down to maybe three or four and just stay there. Um, and that, that would be an issue because the target is 2%. Uh, and if the bank thinks that you know, inflation is not going to come back to 2%, they have a responsibility just to put base rate up or keep it higher for longer to push inflation down to 2%. Uh, and you know, wh what they're doing is, is taking money out of the economy. They're encouraging consumers to spend less, because at the moment, the economy's going too fast. Uh, there's too much money around. Uh, they're trying to take money away, encourage people to spend less, 
mainly does two things. It, it, it means then that companies are less likely to feel secure enough to put prices up and it means therefore there will be uh, a less strong employment market um, and probably less jobs around and therefore employees feel less secure in their jobs in order that they can demand wage rises. They need, they need to cap those two to, to keep a cap on inflation. So uh, it's, it's starting to happen. It, it certainly turned the corner in the US. Um, we, we started increasing our interest rates earlier than the US, but the US went much harder. Um, so they, they got them up um, faster, and the messaging was different. They were way more aggressive, saying, we're just going to keep going. We're going to keep pushing them up, and we're going to kill this. Whereas um, maybe our governor was asleep at the wheel, and he was all a bit gentle. It wasn't good. Um, there's, a, there's a big sort of uh, uh, piece going on at the moment. They, they're, they're looking at all the banks forecasting and modelling. They've got Ben Bernanke in from the US uh, to look at why uh, they've got the, our Bank of England's got the forecasting so wrong. So is this all bad? Are higher interest rates all bad for our businesses? No. Why not? Why not? That, well, that's absolutely true. If you want to buy into properties, and, and of course, you know, w why would you not want to if they were cheaper? It just creates a much, much better opportunity uh, because prices have to fall. And prices um, fall relatively as well. So, you know, a house that was 150 grand two years ago that sells for 150 grand today. Well, it's not actually selling for the same amount, is it? Because we've probably had 20% inflation in between, haven't we? And 20% inflation is 30,000 pounds. So the house that was 150 two years ago today is actually selling for 120, even though the price is 150. See what I'm saying? Um, so, you know, now, now we're coming into, we're in a great time to purchase you're probably not going to get as much cash flow because you know interest rates are higher. But always remember, when one thing's good, i.e. it's cheap to buy, the other two main areas often aren't so good, um, which would be interest rates, how much can you borrow the money for? And the other thing is, what are the rents? Well, the rents are going nuts. The rents are growing really, really significantly. The prices of the properties are going down, uh, so the yield is increasing. And if you're going to be buying these for, say, a 20, 25, 30-year investment, my, my sort of ideal holding period is, is forever, um, then, you know, what's not to like? Lots of people say to me, oh, you know, I can't make, get much cash flow at the moment. Well, yes, that's true, but you're not really buying for this year or next year. You're buying for the next 20, and you're going to get in at the right level. Um, so I think it's great. The other... The other benefit of high inflation is that inflation erodes the debt. It gets rid of the debt. Because you know there we had the example of the £150,000 house. If you borrowed £150,000 two years ago, what's the real value of that £150,000 today? It's one twenty. Because inflation has destroyed your debt, even though you didn't pay it down through a capital repayment mortgage, even though you were paying interest only, inflation reduces the value of your debt. My uncle bought his first house for, say, £3,500. Let's say that was 40 years ago. Ignore all the 
the, the, the sort of price growth, what would that £3,500 be worth today? Roughly, just, just a guess. Three and a half thousand? Two thousand. How, how much would three and a half thousand be worth 40 years ago? Sorry? Maybe 500? Yeah, I, I mean, the, the, the house, uh, well, it's maybe a bit extreme. I don't know. L let's just say the house is worth 250, something like that. Back then, three and a half thousand pounds was maybe, I don't know, maybe 30% of his. Uh, maybe four times his salary, yeah? If he'd stayed in the same job all through those years, hadn't changed his job, he would have had pay rises, but just that are keeping up with inflation, you know, so, so back then, I don't know, let, let's say he was earning, just for argument's sake, a thousand pounds a year, what would his salary be today, roughly? 40,000, something like that? So how many paychecks is it going to take him to pay off that mortgage on that £3,500 house that he bought 40 years ago? Might take him three paychecks. Might take him three. And why is that? What's the main reason? What, what, what is the main reason that the value of that mortgage has gone down? Inflation. Inflation has eroded the debt. It's a bit like when you put a pound in the bank, in a year's time... It, it might only be worth 92p. It's probably gone down by 8%. Well, the same thing happens to your debts in reverse. Yeah? I know that's, uh, you know, when, when I got told that, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, it, 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 yeah, it was probably 15 years ago. It, it took me a while to get it. But then I realized how powerful taking out good fixed-term debt is and holding it over several decades is, you don't need to pay it down. Inflation, father time, pays the debt down. Yes, you still owe the, you know, the original sum that you borrowed, but all of the incomes rise around it. So you know, with property, the rents rise, and obviously the values of the properties rise. Even if they don't beat inflation, they're still going up. Okay, so I'm going to talk a little bit around some of the, the deals that I've done recently. Um, I, I, I started out buying little sort of terraced houses, uh, little houses that we refurbish, revalue, uh, put tenants in. We did that about 400 times, uh, bought, bought investors in. Um, and I just thought to myself, I really want to buy stuff that I can scale. Uh, I can use my time more effectively, you know, the income generating time stuff I was talking about earlier. Uh, so I moved into an area where I thought there's sort of hidden value or uh, explicit value, which would be retail on the high street that is dying. Um, so I uh, bought a series of sort of retail buildings. I've done pubs. I've done offices. Um, this is a couple of retail buildings which I have, have done in, in recent years. So that's the old Marks and Spencers in Peterborough. Uh, that was about 80,000 square foot. Um, so the one with the cross on it on the left... Um, lots of these buildings, the ground floors work. They're still on the high street, so you know you can put the ground floor to use, a commercial use, but the uppers, they're just empty, and there's huge business rates. Um, so a lot of the time, the commercial owners, they don't necessarily know what to do with them. They don't want to carry on with it. Um, so I bought that for 4.2 million, uh, the big Marks and Spencers there. Um, you can see what it was like at the front. Um, 
and we put a supermarket on the ground floor. Uh, so we rented that for 285,000 a year on a 10-year lease to B&M. Uh, but the uppers all just remain empty. B&M don't want that. You know, it, it, years gone by, they might have stored um, some of their goods up there. But, you know, these guys, they get deliveries more often now. There are these sort of last mile delivery centers in, in on the, all the industrial estates. Because, of course, all the retail buildings, you know, we, we're still buying stuff, aren't we? But technological change, i.e. the internet, has driven stuff off the high street onto the industrial estates. So... This shift has been clearly going on now, I don't know, you know, 2009, 10, and then it's probably, you know, really got going then. And then through COVID, it was accelerated big time. So the rents down our high street have probably halved um, since maybe 2009, 2008, something like that. Uh, but they've reached a level now where lots of other tenant types start to work. That building you know, only Marks and Spencers could afford to go in there. You wouldn't have a, a discount sort of retail store like B&M go in there before because they couldn't afford the rent, but they can now because it's half. Um, so that suddenly starts to work. Um, we then, on the left-hand side, you can see that sort of grey area. We put cross keys in. They're a um, housing association. Um, so they uh, rent their properties out and sort of their developments, all that sort of thing. So I got 50000 a year rent from that one. 285 from, from the B&M. So if you sort of value those two things together, it, it values the building at about 4.1 million, something like that. Um, and um, I've, you know, that, that's the internal fit out. They, they, the tenant sort of paid for all that. So, so I, I paid 4.22 for it, and just on the ground floor, I've got 4.1s with a value back. So the uppers are effectively free. Uh, so then I get to work on the uppers. Um, and I um, start sort of stripping it out to work out what exactly I can do. Loads of investigations into the piles and the columns. I think there were 52 columns in there. Um, and, um, you know, I spent probably two years with the council uh, working out how we could, um, you know, what we could put on top. Um, and got this scheme together with a structural engineer uh, to put 600 tonnes of steel on the top of the building. Um, and to create 100 apartments. Um, so you can see there all the, the, the piles. You know, there's, a, uh, I think, 52 columns sitting on 104 piles. So you can imagine all the digging and all the, the, the sort of investigations that went on. The architect created that uh, drawing there. Um, you know, there's the sort of old and the new. Uh, and that's the, the sort of as it was at the back of the building on the loading bay. It was just two floors, um, and the architect thought we could uh, put three extra floors on one side and two on the other. Um, council seemed to like that idea. Uh, one side of the building was a bit stronger than the other. So we got to work, uh, took the slab off the roof, um, ended up sort of building this ourselves in-house, so um, I set up a building company, um, took some of the steel away, took the roof off, um, and then started chipping away at the, at the top of the building, uh, and then started craning the steel onto the top. Uh, so we put sort of um, about 600 tons of, of hot rolled steel and then uh, a load of sort of SFS infill, two big cranes. Um, that's me at the top of the crane with our logo on it. Uh, this is all during lockdown. Um, it was, um, it, it, initially, it was quite worrying. I, 
I think we started on site in February 2020, yeah, and then and I'd signed up to the bank loan, uh, and the the bank loan once we were properly rolling um, was 60 grand a month in interest, just interest. Um, so you know Boris is on telly, uh, telling everybody they've got to close, and obviously I'm there. Uh, you know, getting rather stressed about Sadiq Khan and Nicholas Sturgeon telling him that he should shut the whole, all the construction sites. I'll never forget those two. Um, <coughs> so uh, anyway, we, we sort of continued through it. And it, it, it was difficult getting materials, but then it was quite useful because no one's about, no one's trying to nick my men, um, no one's uh, bothering us outside on the road. Um, you know, we were there in another construction site, and that was it. Everyone else had gone. There was a couple of sandwich shops just, just serving all the construction workers. Uh, so we just cracked on, managed to get on site, say, three or four days a week. Uh, I, I, I did actually start with a, a main contractor, and they went bust. So I just took all the men on and all the subbies on. Uh, and th this is just, I'm sort of telling you all this, because, you know, I've been doing this 20 years, and I still have major issues, and I have to just sort of dive in and, and fix them. Um, and... It's all fixable. Uh, you, you've just got to sort of clear the decks. And if you, if you really make it your imperative and you, you absolutely uh, decide that you're, you, you're going to sort of make something happen, you can do. So this is it. That, that's the, the sort of finished building. Um, and um, what we did on the first floor, we put a lo load of co-living in. So we put um, their, their sort of rooms with en-suites. A uh, little bit like this sort of generation on from HMOs. Um, and uh, so in that building now, there are 159 tenants, um, plus the ground floor commercial. Um, so, um, yeah, it was a um, big challenge getting all the light in. You know, lots of, um, obviously I had to sort of leave big courtyards and put lots of roof lights in uh, to get light into those sort of rooms below. Um, that was it when it's, once it was finished. Uh, that's the valuation, 19.94 uh, million. Uh, and it, it, the gross rent was 1.342 million. I've had it revalued. The rent's now 1.5 because we've had really good rental growth. And he's just valued it at 21.4 million. Um, so we just. So we just um, we keep it. You know, this is a, a long long-term investment. Um, something that you know we, we keep several decades. Um, thankfully, um, I you know I, I in my bones I knew interest rates were going to go up. Um, so I had you know for the last ten years I've always tried to get whatever sort of good fixed rates I can. Um, about forty percent of our portfolio is variable and 60% is fixed. I managed to issue a bond onto the London Stock Exchange, um, guaranteed by the Ministry of Housing. Um, so that, that bond was issued um, and we pay 2.79% fixed for 11 years, interest only. Um, so that, that's obviously looking um, quite nice now. Uh, I think we'd be paying seven, something like that, if, if we hadn't done that. Um, so that, that really works. Um, they basically have a direct line into our uh, finance department. Uh, every quarter they get all the data. Um, you know, that's part of the deal. Um, and, and I think I probably had about nine months worth of legals, 120 grand legal bill. Um, that's how much diligence and checking and, you know, paperwork they did. But um, I suppose that's the deal, isn't it, if you want their guarantee. Um, so. 
that deal's done. Another one that I did was a, a Poundland, um, quite a bit smaller. Um, I worked out that we could put, I tried to put two extra floors on. I was going to put a, a new, uh, I, th I knew we'd have to put a new steel frame in, so I thought we could have two extra floors on. Conservation officer stopped that, said, you know, there was um, a, a clock at the end that was very important and all this sort of stuff. By the way, they're not bothered about that anymore now. They've decided that a lot, a lot of this is irrelevant. Uh, the building opposite, they're now putting an 18-storey building there. This is like three years after. Um, but this is how planning sort of changes. Uh, councils um, decide certain things are no longer relevant. Uh, so they've decided that the views to the cathedral aren't relevant uh, now. So um, I'd quite like to go up on the other one now uh, and this one. But at the time, I could only put one on. So put a new steel frame into that. Um, that those were the original architect's drawings. Uh, paid 760 for it, the building, originally. Ground floor... Um, managed to find the city college. Um, you know, they, again, you know, a tenant like that would nev never have taken that, you know, in, in the old days because the rent would have been too high. But now the rents have all halved. I think they're paying 37,000 a year, which works as a college, as education. You know, and this is, this is what keeps the high street rolling. You know, this sort of service sector type stuff doesn't have to be all, you know, high-end retail. Um, it, you know, high, high streets can stay alive just with other types of tenants. Um, so they're on the ground floor, and then the, the uppers, uh, we turned into a co-living block. Um, so there'd be rooms with en-suites, you know, and shared spaces. Uh, that's it finished. So you can, you can actually see the two buildings, the one behind as well. So I've done them in the same, with the same elevations. My wife designed uh, the elevations to make them look similar. I used my build team. Uh, we use a, a lot of the same materials, sort of Weatherby, and the cladding's slightly different. Um, and uh, we had that valued for just under four million. I think we spent maybe two and a half on the build, something like that. Uh, and that's generating about three hundred and seventy thousand a year in rent, gross rent. Obviously, the costs then come off that. Um, and yeah, that, so that's. That's complete. This is it inside. Um, we, we tend to do a bit of uh, interior design work on our co-living stuff because it's all furnished. Uh, so Gemma goes in there and you know, makes it all look much better than I ever could. Um, <laughs> you want to see the ones that I did originally. Um, so uh, you know, we always use LVT you know, on the floor. Um, you know, I, we have loads of sort of specs that we use uh, as standard, almost always Howden's kitchens, because we can just go down the sort of local depot and switch them in and out. Um, every room uh, would be furnished, there'll all be an ensuite in every room. Um, and these rooms, when we started uh, this sort of model, well, in, in fact, even the big one, when, when that was finished, these rooms, even two, three years ago, would rent at 550. Now we're getting 650 to 700. So the, the rents are growing. Obviously, that includes utility bills. Um, at the moment, I'm, I'm working a way of putting little electric meters in because we're, we're probably going to push some of that back onto the tenants because um, obviously it's gone up so much. Uh, but that will have to be new tenants that we find. Um, and um, yeah, just some more sort of views and uh, pictures of the building. So that's about me finished. I think we've got a little session now with uh, Nick and myself. Uh, questions and, so and all, um, ladies and gentlemen, a little round of applause for Mark Homer, please. 
So, um, Mark, I've been dying to ask you a bunch of questions. Um, first one is, what would you do if you were Prime Minister? Oh my God. <laughs> I can't say everything, because it would be quite controversial. Um, That's what I'm hoping for. Yeah, well, um, so I, I, I think the first thing is, I'd, I, I, I'd take the whole tax system and put it in the bin. Um, and uh, I'd probably reduce taxes. I'd, I'd turn it into, do you remember when we were going through Brexit? Um, there were some of them, I mean, it was absolute nonsense, you know, the stuff they came out with. But they started saying, oh, we can create a Singapore on Thames, you know, where we have extremely low taxes. We drag all these multinationals in. We drag businesses in from all over the world. I, I grew up in Asia. You know, I, I was born in Singapore. And I, I just watched all the foreign direct investment that they had. Uh, and I just think you could do this here. A little bit like in Ireland they've done, uh, where they, they bring corporation tax right down. They bring re business rates down. Obviously, I'm bound to say this because it sort of uh, <laughs> benefits you and me. Yes. <laughs> yes. But... I do think it would have a majorly beneficial effect, you know, effect on the economy. Um, so I think that, that's the first thing. Uh, I mean, I've, I've heard you say a lot before, I think, on your podcast that the impact of lowering taxes on those, but where's all the funding going to come from? And you're like, yeah, but you don't realise how much tax is being lost by people leaving the country uh, or exploiting certain loopholes, etc. Leaving the country and the Laffer curve. Um, you know, it's been proven so often that, um, you know, once you get to a, a certain point of taxation, and we're already beyond it, you, you actually raise less money because people then put time into working away around it, leaving, uh, and just not setting up businesses and generating. So we, we need, you know, probably a bit more like the US, you know, Yes, they've got taxes. We all need taxes, but they need to be reduced. I think the whole welfare system needs overhauling. Um, and we need to get ourselves off this dependency um, of, you know, or the government needs... It's too big. The government is way too big. It needs to be way smaller. It needs to be doing way less in terms of interfering. Um, and therefore, you know, you could generate so much more economic activity and therefore you know, a, a lot more income uh, for the country, uh, you know, t t to pay for things if, if that did happen. So I think that's the first thing I would do. It, w it would be so unpopular in, in many quarters. You know, she was quite, um, you know, divisive and um, lots of people didn't like her and, you know, she's still getting blamed for crashing the economy. But Liz Truss did have some good ideas. Um, the presentation was wrong. It was all way too quick. Um, but some of it was, you know, sort of Thatcherite. I don't think she was quite Margaret Thatcher, and I think that was part of the problem. Um, but there were some good ideas in there. Well, and I think herein, for me, lies the problem with politics, is that generally it's not about the policies, it's about the communication of the policies. Mm. Um, you know, we spoke yesterday morning about... Um, I'm sure you're really familiar with DISC profiling and we oh, talked yeah. about, did a little social experiment here in the room and um, helped everyone to identify what their, their strengths and weaknesses are. And the fact is that generally speaking, um, the people that get into government are the ones that communicate most effectively, that, that sell the ideas most effectively, whether or not the ideas are good or not. Um, I wanted to maybe get advice for people that might be at very different stages of their wealth journey. So, you know, you've shown some mega deals here 
mind-blowing deals. Hopefully that's expanded your thinking. I know certainly has expanded mine. Um, if someone wanted to get started investing and they had a couple of grand to play with and that was it, what would you recommend? I'd probably start trying to do some lease options, trying to get hold of um, some properties um, on a lease um, and um, you know, maybe turn it into a HMO, rent the rooms out individually, uh, generate cash flow from that investment uh, to get you started, uh, to get you onto the run. Because you, know, you don't want to be holding those in the medium term. What you want to do is buy stuff. You want to own freeholds because that's where you'll make most of your wealth from. Over time, the value will, will increase exponentially. Um, inflation will do that for you, even if there's no real growth on top of inflation. Um, so you know, that's how I'd get started. And then you know, I'd pivot probably into single lets where you know, buy little terraced houses. Don't, don't do the flats go with the houses, refurbish them, add value, um, get the tenants in. This is how we started. Uh, and then, you know, roll the money over. Keep, keep you know, buying more, building a bigger portfolio. Um, what and what if somebody's in a, uh, a slightly different position? So maybe they've got um, between 25 and 50 grand and they want to start investing. Um, and by the way, um, the answer might be always property for yeah. you, of course. But you know, it doesn't have to be limited to that, but what, what would your advice be for someone that had maybe a bit more to play with, maybe 25 to 50K? Well, it, it could be either go and get a, a, a little single let, you know, to, to refurbish and then and, and put a family in and, and, and then roll the money over a few times, or a, a room that you, sorry, a house that you split into six rooms that you rent out, you know, on a, you know, HMO basis, or a trading business. You know, Rob and I started a trading business, a little bit like, you know, Nick's got this trading business here. You know, we have used some of the funds from our trading business to put into property uh, because, you know, trading businesses can be great for generating cash a lot quicker with a lot less uh, investment. Uh, and, you know, they can grow a lot quicker. Um, they can be a lot more cyclical. They can, um, you know, you know, maybe the value isn't as uh, sort of definable and solid and they're maybe not as saleable, but you can get there a lot quicker. So, you know, trading businesses are a, um, you know, an absolute must as part of your sort of wealth building profile business, uh, a couple of property strategies, uh, and then sort of on from that, I'd, I'd probably start dumping money into into Vanguard or into sort of unit trust. Yeah, I'm getting onto that in a yeah. minute. Um, so finally then, if someone's sitting on a more significant part of cash and they yeah. want to, um, and it's eroding in the bank, it's you know getting like the, the, the value of it's going down day by day. Um, you know, so maybe if someone's sitting on 100 or 200 grand and they're going, well, I want to start investing that, um, where would you advise they go with that kind of money? I, I wouldn't necessarily change that much from starting with single lets and HMOs to really cut your teeth and learn. Uh, and it, you know, you could get a few with that sort of money. Lots of people would say, oh, go and do a development. But I think you know, developments come after you've cut your teeth buying smaller stuff, learning the trade. Because there's a lot of stuff that can go wrong with developments. And you know, you're, you're less likely to make mistakes once you've got experience along the way. And I suppose um, there's a degree of putting all your eggs in one basket in yeah. one development versus maybe um, splitting the money out between four or five yeah. different projects. Diversification is so important 
important, uh, you know, ac across, you know, property. Uh, you know, let's say you had 200 grand, you might put 150 into, you know, your, your properties and, and maybe into a trading business. You might put 50 grand into some unit trusts, mm. um, you know, or, or into some sort of more stable investments just that you know aren't going to take your time and energy, but you, you know they're always going to be there and they're diversified away from, you know, the things that you're doing day to day because things happen, things change. You know, we had in 08, we had a huge credit crunch. So the people who were developing, uh, trying to sell properties, lots of them got nailed, they went bust. Um, you know, the people back in 08, 09 who were really... Uh, dependent on uh, a specific finance strategy, lots of them went bust because the banks ended up getting themselves into trouble. Um, fast forward to 2016, we had Brexit. You know, that create, created some big dislocations, especially in London. You know, you, you look at flats in sort of Chelsea and lots of areas, I don't know, Earl's Court, you know, where there were lots of Europeans living, loads of them went. The market went down. There was, you know, a big sort of specific area uh, issue around that. People had sort of import-export businesses, you know, there were, there were challenges around that. So each time there's a, a different issue that comes along and it will affect different businesses in different ways. So if you've got some property, a trading business and maybe, you know, some investments in the stock market, um, when the next issue comes along, COVID, which, you know, affected our training business, live training business really badly, but, you know, meant that another part of our business could go online and actually, in some ways, benefited our sort of property business. Um, you know, when the next thing comes along, it'll, you don't know what it is. It'll come along. It'll be something else. It'll affect different businesses in different ways. And if you've got different types of businesses that aren't necessarily correlated. You know, you'll, you'll have two out of the three that will still be okay and providing you an income stream. You need multiple streams of diversified income multiple streams of diversified income. Um, final question from me. And this is actually on behalf of um, two ladies. And they asked me this question on uh, the days all mould into one at dinner Thursday night. And I went, that's a great question, but I want to ask Mark that question. Um, and it was around cars and specifically um, electric cars and also the pros and cons of having... Um, a, a vehicle like an LLP to use as a business owner for those purposes? Yeah, so, I mean, if you, just sort of onto tax, um, if you set up an LLP or you have a partnership or you're a sole trader, one of those three types of entities, you can usually put a, at least one car through. Um, it's different from a limited company. Limited companies and personal cars, not a good idea. But if, you, if you're running a partnership or an LLP or a sole trader, you can usually have one per partner. And that means you could put you know, any interest payments through, any depreciation, all the maintenance, all the fuel, you know, e everything relating to that car. Your accountant at the end of the year will probably say, well, how much was business, how much was pleasure? Often they'll put 80% business, 20% pleasure or whatever. Um, but you will do, especially on a more expensive car, so much better putting it through uh, an LLP, a partnership or sole trader uh, than you will just claiming, what can you claim through a company now, 45p a mile or something, it barely touches the sides. So that's where I would start. Um, a lot of the uh, sort of dash to get electric cars is because 
of tax benefits in limited companies? Well, if you're not operating through a limited company, there are no, it, it, it can be just as good to get a, a normal car through a, a partnership, sole trade or LLP. So don't necessarily go and get an electric car because of that. I think there are some real challenges with electric cars. Um, lots of people went and bought Porsche Taycans, put them in their companies or Teslas. Um, and, you know, b b people have sort of woken up to the fact that the range isn't necessary there. You get range anxiety. It's fine, I think, around town. But if I was coming here today, I, I wouldn't have brought an electric car because I, if, I, if it wasn't fully charged and, you know, I've got to go on from here to somewhere else, you know, I, 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 I don't want to stop for half an hour to charge it up. And it's expensive. You know, it's 65p a kilowatt to charge at the moment on the motorway. So, all right, you charge at home at 30p a kilowatt, which is a little bit of a saving over petrol and diesel. But the car costs so much more in the first place. People have sort of woken up to the, the, the challenges with it. And without those tax benefits, the values of them have dropped hugely. Um, you know, Porsche Taycans have pl absolutely plummeted. Uh, and so have Teslas. Now, maybe they're more like, you know, fair value now. Maybe a used one is more like fair value. But you, you've got to factor in replacing the battery. I think people are sort of working out, um, you know, how often you need to do that. It can be a huge cost. Um, it, battery can be £15,000. Um, and it, it can be. On, on, it depends what it is. I mean, if it's a McLaren, the battery can be £150,000. Um, so, obviously, smaller cars, it's going to be less. So, ju you just need to think about all that stuff and also where you, where you get it serviced, where you get the maintenance done. So, you know, for me, I, electric cars aren't ready. That te technology will probably get there. Um, they're going to have to expand the grid massively. I mean, it's a tiny proportion at the moment how many cars on the road are actually electric. Um, you know, if they get anywhere near to the, 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 the goals that they've set, it, it's unsustainable in terms of the, the amount of electricity we generate and the grid and, you know, all the cabling at the moment. So maybe it gets there. You know, let's hope the technology develops enough uh, to, to, to sort of get to that position where, where it actually works. In terms of the environmental benefits, obviously there are benefits that, you know, in, you know, the, the, the exhaust emissions, of course, that's a, a major benefit. But it, is it actually better for, you know, that, that's better for you and your family and, and people living in cities because they're not breathing in nasty fumes. But is it better for the environment? Well, I think the jury's still out on that. You know, the stuff that goes into the batteries, the, the, the metals that, that have to come out of South America uh, and the decommissioning of the batteries and all the particulates that come off the tyres because of the extra weight. Uh, I think if you take all that in the round along with, you know, the fact that, I don't know, something like half of our electricity is generated by gas, uh, so you have to burn that or burn other fossil fuels to generate it. Uh, if you take all of it, I don't think environmentally at the moment they're actually better than a petrol car. Maybe they're better than a diesel because of the um, there are uh, there are other nasty things in diesels. I've, I've forgotten the, the word, even though we were told to buy those by the government. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if you remember that. This is a little bit. This is a, there's a theme here, isn't there? Uh, yeah. So. I, I'm not sure, you know, I, I, my wife, we're just getting her a, a hybrid at the moment. So she'll be charging up, she'll do 70 miles, but then as soon as I need to really go somewhere, 
and I've got a petrol engine, uh, and that's the way I'll continue until, until the technology moves on, I think, and, and we're really, really, and the price comes down. You know, we're still, we're still paying 30p a kilowatt at home for electricity. It was 14 before all this nonsense started. You saw British Gas, um, you know, announce their profits a couple of days ago. They were making 100, 110 million 2018 and 2019. Last year, they made 900 million. Um, so, you know, the, the, this is coming out of what we're paying for the electricity. So that needs to, um, that needs to drop significantly. Um, and then maybe electric cars will become attractive again. And they need to sort them out. Porsche Taycans don't work. They break all the time because it's such new technology. Uh, so it, it'll get there, uh, I would have thought, if, if they don't decide to go down the hydrogen road or, or something else. But you can't trust the government with this stuff. Now, they said we were going to have hydrogen through our boilers. Already they're rowing back on that, saying we're not going to do that anymore. And people, you know, we're about to go and buy hydrogen boilers and you've, got to, you've sort of got to wait. You've got to wait to work out which way this is actually going to go. Sufficiently, well, by the way, what I really want to know now, because the conversation on the other night was electric car or gas guzzler was the exact terminology that you use. So <laughs> I'd love to know where you are now. They've improved a lot, I think. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, they're having to. They, they, the later take-hands are much better than the early ones. They've had to. They are. Well, I listen to your podcast, yeah. my words. Love that show. Can be, yeah. Yeah. No problem. Ladies and gentlemen, round of applause for Mark Homer. <laughs> Thanks, mate. Thanks, Thank mate. you.